Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Amanda Grunwald, PhD student, laboratory instructor, and researcher from the Department of Biology at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. She's here today to tell me about her paper in Volume 21, Issue 1 of Systematics and Biodiversity, in which she and her co-authors describe a new species of bat from Cameroon. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So the bats that you work on are in the family Vespertilionidae, which are sometimes called the simple-nosed bats, um, and they're considered a type of microbat. So can you introduce us to this group? What are the microbats, um, and who are the simple-nosed bats? Which I love the name, by the way. I think that's a very sweet name. So yeah, bats were traditionally divided into two suborders, um, microchiroptera, which are called microbats, and megachiroptera, which are megabats. And so this was based on primarily morphology and behavior. And so microbats are uh, generally smaller. They have less defined vision. Uh, they have laryngeal echolocation. Um, and then megabats are from a single family, so pteropodidae. They have more well-developed vision, um, generally typically larger. Uh, however, further molecular work uh, supported the idea that microbats are kind of a paraphyletic group, uh, which essentially means that it's not much of a natural group. And so these rhinolophoid bats, which were in the group microbats, um, turns out they're more closely related to pteropodids. And so a new, they're, they're kind of, while you'll commonly still see micro and megabats are actually now grouped into two groups. Someone doesn't want to say orders, but two got to be careful there with the uh, taxonomy. Yango chiroptera and, uh, you know, uh, yintero chiroptera. Um, and so chiroptera, that's the order that bats are fall within. And so chiroptera literally translates to hand wing. Chiroptera contains 21 families. There's 236 genera and over 1,400 species, uh, and that's still climbing. So bats are hyper-diverse. They're the second most speciose group outside of rodents. I think rodents are at like 2,600 plus species. Um, yeah, and so the newly described uh, Mbamincum serotine bat, uh, Sidoromycia Mbamincum, which is a mouthful, falls within the family uh, Vesper Tilianidae. And those are called the simple nose bats. And so what that means, some context is needed there, right? So they're called simple nose bats because, um, and if any of the listeners have not looked at how insane and cool bat like nose structures get, please do some Googling. <laughs> um, yes. Because a, there's a lot of bat groups that have these 
really, really, really intricate and ornate uh, wrinkles and grooves around their nostrils that assist with, uh, likely assist with echolocation. And so, so yeah, so they have these kind of more simple noses um, without these ornate structures on them. Yeah, so then I guess our bat, Sodoromycia, uh, falls within, again, Vespertilionidae. Uh, and Sodoromycia was recently described by Dr. Aramana Jim. He is actually a collaborator on our species description, and he is a fantastic African bat, systematist, taxonomist, and ecologist from South Africa. And the genus currently contains 10 species. And yeah. I think that's so exciting that you're doing work on what is still like a new genus. I, I don't know if all of the species in it are new, but um, it sounds like this is a really exciting, like developing area of bat taxonomy. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, there uh, There's a lot of work needed in African bat taxonomy. Um, and and yeah, Sodoromycia actually, because pseudo means false, right? So they these bats were actually grouped in the genus Neuromycia. Um, so Ara did a great a great job naming them. So Sudoromycia. So um, yeah, and the bats are small. They're medium sized bats. They got the simple nose. Um, a, a few of the members have these really cool translucent white wing membranes, which is pretty awesome. And then some of the others have um, are your kind of little brown bats. So they're brown brownish colors with darker wings. I feel like every uh, group of taxa has. Like in entomology, we have like the damn little brown beetles or... I know. When I was in the field, I kept going to LBMs because I hang out with a bunch of biologists often. And I have my 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 uh, fungi friends and they always are like, when we're going looking for mushrooms they're always, or mushroom foraging, they're always like, oh, LBM, LBM. And I'm like, I have LBMs in my field. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned that you're working on the taxonomy of African bats. So are these bats, um, is this group of bats exclusively from Africa, from Western Africa? Where where do you find them? That's a great question. They are, so Sodoromycia, as we currently know, of course, because right, science always changes with new information. But um, this genus is widely distributed across sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, But essentially really in the equatorial, tropical, and woodland belt. So if you look up like a forest map of Africa, there's a a um a tropical belt that kind of runs along the equator and they're essentially kind of defined within that region uh except for one species sodoromycia randali extends uh i think south into the savannah habitats for this paper you and your co-authors collected bats from the mbam minkum massif so can you tell us why you chose this area and what makes it so ecologically interesting yeah, we originally wrote a proposal looking at a few other locations in Cameroon, which at the time were a little inaccessible. And so we kind of like, in a weird way, stumbled onto this location. And then after looking into it, there was there was very little research on the area. And so uh, that's intriguing, right? Because if you can't find any information on something, it's like, well, what's here? And like, why has nobody looked here, et cetera? And um, and so kind of really the only research that that I could find was on the um, a species of bird called the gray-necked rockfowl, which is Picathartes. And this bird is, I believe, endangered. Uh, it might be vulnerable, but it's um, isolated to two locations. And 
there was a couple papers on that bird. And then I think there was one paper on forest elephants and orchid species. But there was a lot of, I think in the orchid species paper, it said that like potentially there are numerous primate species and potentially lowland gorillas. There used to be forest elephants, um, like all these just uh, really amazing, incredible mammals. And so that kind of drew us in. And then, yeah, and then it, it, this this place is actually what my dissertation is about as well. So I'm going to I'll kind of throw in a little bit of, of, of that work as well, because it's very pertinent to this topic. But um so it, it's an Inselberg and, and an Inselberg is essentially just um, it's a geologic term. It's a it's an isolated mountain that rises abru- abruptly from an area of relatively flat land. So essentially you have very homogenous uh, lowland rainforest surrounding Mbambinkum. And so what this Inselberg provides is it's an area of increased geodiversity. It kind of has greater geologic diversity than the surrounding areas. And due to that increased geodiversity, it also has a bioclimactic segregation. So it's different from the surrounding area. Um, It's got a little bit of a higher temperature, high water vapor content. Um, There's kind of a climate of fog and fine rains. And then it's also, that also leads to transitional vegetation. So different vegetative structure. And then Mbam Minkum's also located within the ecotone of four different forest types. So the crossover of four different forest types. And because it rises abruptly from lowlands, it also is a a major water catchment area. So um, several springs and rivers begin on Mbam Minkum. That's important for people that live nearby uh, as well as as, as animals. And so um, Inselberg's essentially are really important for niche space of animals and they create shelter, unique foraging sites, their differing elevation, different vegetation, unique hunting localities, water catchment areas. And so they can offer opportunities for specialization. And what do you think the bats are doing there ecologically? Ooh, doing there ecologically? I don't know because there hasn't been any research. However, there's been a lot of research on... um, how bats function in ecosystems and the services that they provide. Often it's related to us, but um, but really, uh, I mean, given that they're found pretty much on every continent except for Antarctica, and they're hugely diverse, uh, and there's, again, we talked about all those species, um, they're pretty much found everywhere in very, very high numbers. Um, so there's been a lot of work on uh, our research into Seed dispersal, so um, bats that eat fruit help with seed dispersal in forests. There are bats that pollinate specific species or multiple species, and so they're pollinators. And then they also help with nutrient cycling, right? So guano, I believe it was um, one of like Texas's biggest money markets before oil. Um, and then most species of bats are insectivores. And so they play a huge role in um, insect suppression and and balance, right? So, however, I think more research is definitely needed into, and this is a harder thing to look at, but the cascading effects of those things, right? Because ecosystems are so complex. Um, So like the effects on plant fitness and um, 
plant regrowth and that how the nutrient cycle plays into the pollination and the and the seed dispersal and also kind of understanding how bats are pivotal in terrestrial ecosystems but also cave environments so there hasn't been a lot of research into because a lot of bats are cave roosters how these bats play into these really specific cave ecosystems um and and and, and on a kind of a final note uh, kind of very pertinent to us here in the US uh there's been a lot of studies about the ecosystem services that bats found here provide and and specifically cuz all of our all of our bats are are in, insectivorous bats i found this on there's been many studies but you can even look on the USGS website that bats essentially save US agriculture about 3.7 to as much as 53 billion dollars per year um and when you think about the ways that we suppress insect populations, it's very destructive. For example, pesticides. We're suppressing the insects, but then we create this whole other issue. And bats do it safely. And and bats themselves are so interesting. I'm actually curious how you got into this line of work. Oh, I you know, I kind of I kind of stumbled into it. I really like I really, really love rodents. Funny enough, owned rats pretty much for a very long time. And I love them as pets. And so I got really into rodents in my mammalogy class. Um, and then I kind of just stumbled onto this project with bats and I fell in love. And I had done, done a study abroad in Ghana and also fell in love with Ghana. And um, I found a way to link the two. Um, and then that project st- kind of ended up turning into another project and and then I ended up here. <laughs> and so now you do research in Central Africa um, and specifically in Cameroon. So uh, what is it like to research these bats uh, internationally and in Cameroon specifically? It's actually pretty complicated, right? Because I essentially am working in a country that we in the U.S. continue to extract both labor and resources from. That's not something that we did. That's something that we still do. And so the system's really entrenched in colonialism and even in science, right? Where someone like me gets to go to another country uh, and do research rather inexpensively for me and then continue in, in a way to extract knowledge and resources and then really reap the benefits. And that's actually been something that I think a lot about with my dissertation um, and has been extremely challenging for me. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about how in my small project, it's a very small project. It's like a, I funded it on my own tiny little project um, and future projects that I will likely do. Like how I can use my privilege to kind of rebalance the scales, in other words. Um, and so there are a few things that I personally am trying to do and have done. And granted, it's time consuming uh, on top of all the other things that are involved in my PhD, but it's absolutely necessary. Um, one of those things is to use my voice. So whenever I talk about my research, I, I like to bring these things up. Um, I think they're uh, crucially important. And I don't think they should be dissected outside of science. But also uh, to amplify my Cameroonian collaborators' voices. My collaborators are kick-ass researchers. They're doing amazing work. You know, but I'm I'm working on also stolen wealth redistribution. So giving collaborators gear. Uh, paying researchers really well. We should be paying researchers the same wages that we would expect. And then also working to balance the scales in research. So thinking about travel and access to molecular work and access to 
all of the really, really amazing scientific labs and equipment that we have here in the U.S. And then finally, to essentially remind myself to to stay flexible and open to the fact that new ideas are going to come about and I need to listen to them um, and I need to accept criticisms, um, internalize them, and just keep continuing to try to fix things. Um, So on that note, I do want to give a shout out to Yvette uh, Naginyi who was my collaborator on this project. She worked in the field with me. And then if any of the listeners are interested in learning about Cameroonian bats from Cameroonian bat researchers, Dr. Eric Bakwo-Fils is amazing. He actually was involved in my dissertation work and two of his students, one of which recently got a a teaching position at Yaoundé University, uh, Dr. Patrick Adagana and a PhD student, Frank Mayo, are some work that y'all can look into. Yeah, I will include um, those names and some associated links in the description of this episode. And and I think there are also some really important considerations that are taxonomy specific. As you mentioned, the history of taxonomy largely involves Western scientists going to non-Western places, collecting, and then returning with these specimens that they then were able to use to bolster their careers. As taxonomists, um, we can make sure, for example, that the specimens that we collect are deposited in a repository in the country of their origin. Or if we're not able to do that, um, we can make sure that there are pathways for scientists from those communities and from those countries to access our specimens. So we're not just taking their nature and putting it in our museums or in our institutions. A hundred percent. And those institutions still deeply benefit from that history of violence and oppression. And uh, some of those institutions are multi-million dollar institutions. So when you're actually in Cameroon collecting, what does that look like? There are many levels to that, but uh, but essentially there's a lot of permits that you need. Permits are always fun. Um, but you, all researchers or scholars from anywhere, including Cameroonians, I have to get a research permit from the Ministry of Scientific Research and Innovation in Cameroon. And then there there are other permits, right? So you have to get um, IACUC, which is at Portland State for me, which is Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. So kind of an an ethical board about animal use and capture. And then I work on bats. So the CDC wants to be involved. Um, And then once we kind of get into lower levels in Cameroon, like lower federal levels. There are prefix that kind of oversee some zones and we got to get permission from the head prefect. And then there are chiefs of different areas. And so we have to get the chief's permission to work in the area. And then we have to get the landowner's permission to work in the area. Um, So there's a lot of steps to be able to also just show up on someone's land and start doing work, right? And I want—I also want to take a second to say, um, I have worked on so many people's property in Cameroon and never once have I ever been unwelcomed. Like I have been, like us in our group have been like sat down, hugged, offered food, drink. It, it, it's, 
It's so wonderful. Yeah. And what that reflects to me hearing it um, is not only like a, a love and compassion for other people, but like a love and compassion and, and appreciation for ecology. Did, did you get to talk to them about your work? And community. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone was very excited. And people are um, with good reason because bats do carry diseases that have impacted people in Africa uh, quite substantially. Um, and also bats like fly around at night and like they're associated with vampires and like all of this, you know, lore. People are are scared of bats, you know. Um, bats are not aggressive at all. I have been in the middle of jungle with a, like hundreds of bats flying around my head. Um, one ran, it slapped into my head once. Like, <laughs> like bats are, they're not aggressive in any way. Did it, did it hurt? No, it was a tiny bat, like a five gram bat. Um, I, I actually kind of ran into it, to be quite honest. They're way better at navigation than I am. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're not aggressive in any way. I mean, if you grab one, it's going to bite you. But if you grab anything, it'll bite you, right? But anyways, yeah, people are a little weary of bats, but that's so cool because when we do end up trapping them, like the like showing them to the kids and like getting to release them and feed them and like show that to the kids is like the funnest thing ever. And even the adults, that's like hands down the, the best part of research for me is like is working with other people in collaboration. And then there's the um, outside of community, uh, which again is one of the best parts. Uh, there's also, um, oh, and I want to give a shout out to this specific paper. We stayed in uh, Nikolaki, which is uh, a village right at the base of Mbiaminkum. And I want to give a shout out to both the chief and the chief's son, Joseph, because Joseph was our guide and he was so helpful um, and like, so instrumental in the work that we did. Um, again, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the word kick-ass a lot, but just a kick-ass man who, I mean, just knew the area so well and, again, crucial to our success. Um, but then, yeah, there's also the logistics, right? So you have equipment. So you have, uh, we use mist nets, which are these really thin nets uh, that kind of, when a bat hits them, they, they essentially kind of get caught. Um, and then you check those frequently so you can remove the bats quickly. And then harp traps, which are essentially like very, like layers of very thin horizontal string. And so the bats kind of run, run into the first layer and then they, they pivot to get through because bats are really good, especially in rainforests at um, maneuverability because they have to because there's been a bunch of dense vegetation. So they hit the first layer, they um, quickly transition, but then they hit the next layer, which is just offset. And eventually they fall down into a bag. Um, and then we also have a bunch of camping gear because, you know, um, we in our, uh, depending on what we're doing, like my last research, we had, I think, seven campsites, three nights at each campsite. So, um, you know, we have to carry all that gear for that whole time. Um, and so then we have acoustic gear. So we have uh, these devices for recording acoustic data. And then we got to carry our our food, which is really hard because we basically ate rice and sardines the whole time, which is not a good breakfast. <laughs> it's fine for dinner, but not my not my preferred breakfast. Um, and then um, yeah, and then there's also right like the actual work because we're dealing with bats here, which are not hunting during the day, so we're sitting and waiting near these traps at night, well, essentially you're trapping from like sunset 
to midnight one. But still, also prime time for insects because that's what they're eating, a lot of them. I also love insects. I was, I, I'm a huge spider spider lover. Um, and and so like so we're sitting out and like getting bitten alive because we're in the forest, like in a humid forest at pr- prime insect time, essentially just giant hot dinners, right? <laughs> you have donated blood, sweat, and tears to many, science. Yes, yes, yes. And again, filled many insects' bellies. But at the same time, for everything that was equally challenging, you get the opposite of that, which is just like magical and beautiful. Like we saw so many chameleons, which was so cool because chameleons are really hard to find. Lo and behold, really good at camouflage. And then we we saw like a bunch of really awesome, beautiful, bright, uh, lizard like skinks and frogs and birds right there's so many cool birds uh and so you're getting bitten alive but it's worth it <laughs> so it's all worth it because it's an amazing experience and then it's also all worth it because you get to bring those specimens back to the the lab or the institution and you get to identify them so what was the process of identification how did you decide that this bat was a new species uh, we had we had some we had a list of specimens that we had caught that were like questionable due to the fact that this specimen was questionable. We did, we did keep this specimen. Um, so we have a, um, we did have to euthanize it. Um, and we did skull measurements. Um, that's really important for identifying new species of bats. And so we did a bunch of skull measurements, a bunch of wing bone measurements and, and it didn't fit with anything. So then sent it to some collaborators at the field museum in Chicago so we sent it to Dr. Terry Demos, who is also a collaborator on the paper, and Dr. Bruce Patterson, awesome researchers. Um, and Ara was involved in, in, in this as well, as he was, he's pretty much the expert on Sidoromyceus, as he defined the genus. And uh, and yeah, and so we got, when we got the molecular work back, essentially the, the three of them were like, yeah, this is pretty much confirmed a new species of this recently described genus. That's so exciting. I, I can't imagine how you felt in that moment. Yeah, that was really exciting. Yeah, I got the email back and I was like, that's so awesome. And yeah, and then, I, and then it was just like, all right, what do we do now? And so it was get to writing. Yeah, and uh, in your paper, you discuss the IUCN status of the bats you examined. Um, so we talked a little bit about conservation before, but what did you decide and what does that mean for future conservation efforts? Yeah, so um, it was... Well, this actually was a kind of a debate between some people, but it was pretty clear as far as as far as I was concerned that the bat was data deficient since we only captured one bat. Um, since the species description was written based on this single capture, we don't we didn't know. We still don't know what its geographic range is. Uh, we did capture some on our last expedition, which was really cool. Um, however, nobody spent the time to see is it anywhere else. Um, And also, there are a lot of bats out there, specifically, well, I guess there's a lot of reasons why, but one of them being, we didn't have access to molecular techniques when a lot of these bats were being collected. And so there are a lot of misidentified bats in museum collections. And so that's the other thing is that like, if somebody out there wants to do it, <laughs> go to the museums and and see if you can find any Sidoromycia mammincum or even just Sidoromycia species misidentified because they're definitely out there. Um, but also we need more research to um, to kind of look at, you know, 
what's the extent of the range of this bat species and many other bat species. Um, and I think a lot of, I'd mentioned uh, Dr. Eric Bakul-Fills and, and, and Dr. Adagana and, and Frank, um, they're currently doing a lot of field research there. So we'll see if any of their collections come up with any uh, Umbambinkum serotines. And how did you and your colleagues name the new species? Mm. That's a good question too. Um, so it's, so we kind of talked about this, right? About like people going to, to other international countries and naming things that often already had names. Um, but uh, we decided to name it after the mountain that it was found. Um, so Bam Minkum translates to a group of rocks in the Eton dialect, which is the dialect of the people that live um kind of really adjacent to Mbambinkum. And so we thought that that was a pretty good name for the bat species, especially since it might only be located there. We don't know. I'm really excited to potentially hear about other specimens of this new species because the fact that you only have one, I mean, it's it's difficult in the context of science, but also it's, it's still very meaningful data. You still have this very meaningful paper. Um, ultimately, it's just really exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You obviously care a lot about bats. Um, and uh, what I'm wondering is, what is the significance of this new species? Why do you think that people should care about this bat? Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, like, personally, I struggle with that question because I'm like, everything holds intrinsic value. But, um... I guess that's a conversation about diversity, right? Because diversity is crucial to ecosystem functioning. And I think often we don't really consider how diverse our environments are and how intricate the dynamics between everything is and how crucial it is for the well-being of that entire system. And this is something that I talk to my students when I teach like um, principles of biology labs. A lot of them actually are um, are med students, but I try to really get them amped up about plants. And I myself am not necessarily a plant person. I like animals most. But I, I really try to like get them to really think like, hey, I know that y'all maybe not aren't like super interested in plants. However, think about it though. We need them to breathe because we are a hundred percent dependent on all of these things in our ecosystem. Every single thing is important. Oh, and actually I can tie that back to a, a real quick story about um, when I was in the field and we were in this area that had just been deforested and right next to it was like prime secondary primary forest, uh, dense, you know, rainforest. And in the deforested area, I was getting bitten by this one insect. Uh, I do not know what species the insect was. And it, it was driving me mad because it was just relentless. And I was like, I'm going to go into the rain. I'm just going to go into the, the rainforest, right? So I, I walked, I don't know, 20 feet into the woods. And immediately, I wasn't bitten anymore. Um, and that really speaks to diversity because you have all of these checks and balances um, in diverse habitats that keep everything to a to a reasonable size, right? And so that, and it was 10 degrees cooler. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, but um, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, this was very fun. <laughs> I'm so glad. 
Amanda Grunewald's paper, A Review of Bats in the Genus Pseudoromycia, with a description of a new species, is in Volume 21, Issue 1 of Systematics and Biodiversity. See the episode details for an open access link to the paper, and to learn more about Amanda and her work, you can check out the nonprofit Bat Conservation International at batcon.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.